drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Welcome to episode 19 of Drive-By Cinema. Here with me today, I'm laughing at his uh, video background, is my co-host Paul. Yes, hi everybody, and uh, thank you for the greetings from our wonderful co-host Richard. Also with us today is our third co-host, I don't know how you say co in that circumstance, is Alistair. Alistair, welcome sir. Hello there, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Well, this is your film suggestion, Alistair, so yeah. it would be rude not to invite you back. Thank you. To explain yourself. <laughs> oh dear. Also, I'm told that you have corrections that you need to address. Oh, yeah. I have one correction, um, well, that I'm aware of. There may be others, but um, the one I'm aware of is that when I'm referring to the, uh, the three Hindu gods that are responsible for creation, preservation, oh, and destruction no. of worlds, I did make an error. I said that they were... Brahma, Shiva, and Kali. Now that's wrong. It's uh, Brahma is the creator, Vishnu is the preserver. Vishnu, yeah, and Shiva is the destroyer. Um, Kali, I believe, is the goddess associated specifically with death. So Ooh. I did make an error there. I apologise for that. Um, it was off the cuff, man. That's what yeah, happens in podcasts. It was. It was. No, is that resp- a goddess or a god? Kali is a goddess. We um, shouldn't stigmatise with that association, should we? Really. I thought they were kind of both aspects in the Hindu gods. I think Kali is definitely feminine. Um, in, yeah, I'm pretty certain. But still, we shouldn't stigmatise it not with a gender, but with association with death, I don't think. I don't think it's fair in the modern age, is it? I think it's an important job. I think if you don't... Is have, it? All right. Well, okay. I think otherwise people don't die. It's like the Greeks had um, Hades, ah. who was the god of the underworld, but there was also um, a god of death as well, which who was uh, Thanatos, I believe, which, which is why Thanatophobia is the fear of death. Meanwhile, Paul, I... Yes, I'm not a bastard. Well, I don't think I'm a bastard, Richard. What are you going to say about me? No, no. I was just oh, going to... I, I have received the letter from your legal team <laughs> threatened. About what? A cease and desist. Uh, oh. I wondered how much input you'd had it into your legal team's letter. Oh, any spelling mistakes? Well, it was a section about potential damages, because I don't think the word gazillions is one that a professional lawyer <laughs> or solicitor... <laughs> Would have used. <laughs> Did I mention which currency it was? That old Faustian bargain. I used to see nineties uh, BBC Two American TV series. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that the twist? There's also a twist. Yeah, it's not dollars. It's Japanese yen or something. You know. <laughs> okay. I think it happened in Wild Palms. Drogners. It happened in a few. It was a mid nineties twist that was really popular. Your legal team's credibility was shot anyway because of the press conference they held. I think they booked the Four Seasons Total Landscaping <laughs> and Gardening Hey, as look, their venue. I'm Beppy, the uh, the fascist Trumpian alien frog. What can I say? Yes. All right. That should remain cryptic, hopefully. Is that, is that our admin out of the way? Can we get on with uh, the film? What's it called? It ends with Ents. We know that much. It does, yes. And it starts with a co. <laughs> it's Coherence. It's Coherence from 2013. Now, this was directed by a director with a name, and it was played by actors with various names also. I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> I feel proud of that fact. That means we're going to have to listen to the sting music that you composed, Paul. Here it comes. Right. But why don't you pick up, Paul, then? Explain what you've learned on Wikipedia. 
Oh, well, I learned something very interesting, uh, that this was made for about $50,000. Incredibly small budget. Yes. Astonishingly so. I mean, it is a lockdown movie in the sense that the set is one house, which doubles Mm -hmm. as two or more houses. It's the writer and director's house. It is indeed, yeah. It it fails to be a lockdown movie because they're breaking all of the lockdown laws by having a dinner party. <laughs> well, I think that makes it more than lockdown, really, doesn't it? You know, but I think I think the fact the decision to put it in one house really builds the claustrophobia and the paranoia to a, a very high level in the movie, or, or at least it tries to. And so, a good decision, I think, really, not to do anything apart from stay in the house, except to run out and back in once in a while. I'm going to have to explain what this movie is about. Scary. Uh, what what's that movie? What's that? Is it a movie or like a play for today about the dinner party? No, I mean Abigail's party. Abigail's party. Is yeah. that the one where there's a there's it's mm. in it's in um, a suburban house and there's a family. Oh. There's Alison Stedman uh, is in it and yes, I know that one. It's yeah. a Mike. It's, it? it's a Mike Lee. It's a Mike Lee play. Mike Lee. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they invite the mm. neighbours round, and one of them has a daughter called Abigail, who's having this raucous party a few doors down. Yeah, it's about huh. these these people are, are all really horrible. <laughs> Is that the one you mean? Uh, yeah, no, Abigail's party. So, exactly. Yeah. It's very yeah. good. It's very very good. It's just you know a film about a dinner party that kind of reminded me about like well, the same. There is Euron. another. There's another parallel though, which of course is the is the method that the writer and director ah. chose for how mm-hmm. this film was made, which is that he didn't... There's, there's no script. Yeah. Whoa! It was improvised. This film was improvised. Entirely improvised. Yeah. Well, not entirely. Well, they no. had an idea for the story. Yeah, in a very Mike Lee format, the, there was a story. Yeah. That, so there were certain events that had to happen. There was a context. The char- Each of the actors was given a backstory for their character but not for any of the other characters. And this is the other thing, is the the actors were all recruited by the director, the writer and director, um, whose name is James Ward Burkett. And he, he recruited them all on the basis that they all had good improvisational chops. You know, they all had good a good yeah. history of improvisational work in their CVs. And none of them knew each other. And hmm. none of them met until they started filming. Whoa. So that's that's the thing. Mike Lee operates on a similar basis. He doesn't give. There might be a few lines specifically that he wants his characters to say, but he doesn't give them a script as such. So they work things out as they're talking. But so the the improvisational nature of this film, coherence, I think, gives rise to some tremendous moments in in the dialogue, especially when you know that they're improvising. There's some superb stuff takes place. But I think one of the things that is, is superb about it is that it means that the characters talk over each other quite a lot because... I was going to say, yeah, it's it's like a hallmark of that kind of filmmaking, isn't it? Yeah. It feels like a real conversation taking place and that people talk over one another and it's messy and confused, but quite realistic. It makes it very realistic. Fact, oh, sorry. Well, just talk, just talked over each other. Sorry, just to prove the point. Sorry. <laughs> go, go, sorry, go, go, go on. See you go first. Well, I was just going to say the other thing is is that you've also got one character in this case, a lady called Laurie, who is a little bit of an outsider to this group of friends that are in this film, and that gives the opportunity of her asking questions of the of some of the people and, and you know, oh, what have you been up to? Oh, isn't you? Aren't you the person who? Da, da, da. And it means that we get a little that gives a way in to allowing a bit of backstory without it looking clumsy, which I thought was a, a nice touch. I, I, I was reminded of the game that you play. Uh, paranoia is it called paranoia where you have to guess who the who the imposter is or something like that werewolf 
Werewolf, yeah. Among well, I think there's a new version. Where you, there's a Among, new us. Version Among where, us. Among Us, yeah. There's a new version where two of you get stoned and one of you isn't stoned and the other people have to guess which two people are stoned and one person isn't stoned. I think it's called Paranoia. Yeah, part That's of every game. time people get stoned, isn't it? I know, it's just made explicit kind of thing. <laughs> so it reminded me of that. I, I thought, you know, they ramp up the tension really well in this movie. Yeah. So the story of this movie is a dinner party is happening. Not really sure why. I'm not sure that ever gets explained. It seems weird to us nowadays, uh, but before COVID, people did do this kind of thing, didn't they? They had dinner parties. It could happen uh, in another kind of lifetime. We're following this one particular character at the start of the movie when she's driving to the house that the dinner party's taking place. She's chatting with a boyfriend on the phone, I think. And she's holding a handheld phone while she drives. Naughty. Naughty girl. Yeah. But she makes it there without incident anyway. Apparently, this night happens to be a night where a comet is passing by overhead, which becomes a subject of conversation later in the film when they go out and have a look at it. It transpires that this comet has another weird effect. First of all, it causes the lights to go out at a certain point in time. Secondly, it means... And this is going to sound weird if you haven't seen the film. It means that the house and the people in it are sort of duplicated. And it becomes <laughs> it becomes a fact that down the road, there is another house exactly like the house that they are in At least with the same house. people. At least, well, later you learn that's not the only one, that there are others, many others, possibly. But they have to come to this realisation gradually. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, if your house was duplicated, it would take you a while to work it out, probably. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first thing you'd think, and you wouldn't go and check, would you? You'd have no reason to. I think it's likely signposted for the viewer. I, I think we get to realise a little bit quicker than they do. This is the great thing about the film, isn't it? It's yeah. you are in with them, and you are as confused as they are for a large part of the movie, if not all the movie. And you slowly learn, apprehend what has happened yeah. using the clues that they're given. And that's that's nice. You're along, along for the ride with them. There are some really nice moments where you where things dawn on you, and the pen you can feel your own yeah. penny drop with them, can't you? And I think that that's quite nice. I think you, you there's not a great deal of um, viewer irony in the sense that we know more than they do. It unfolds yeah. in front of us, and we learn it as they learn it. You know, they're all intelligent people for the as far as I can see. You know, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think we. It feels like we are definitely in inside the story. But I think it's lightly signpost signposted for us because you know we sense as an import because we're watching a movie when there's yeah. a note on the door. We know that's significant, whereas there they haven't realised that yet. So I like the way it kind of puts us with them, but just slightly ahead of them. It's it's nice because then you can speculate what's going to happen. You're right. There was one hint when two of the, the two people who leave the house first to try to uh, when all the lights go out, one of them takes a peep outside and says oh yeah all the lights are out apart from one house that's two blocks away so -hmm. there's a couple of guys go to that house to try to ask if they can use the phone and what freaks them out is that they can see through a window and they can see it they just all that they say is we can see a room with a table that's set for dinner with wine glasses and eight places on it which is of course is exactly the same as that in theirs now he doesn't say it looks like this room he just says that and you, you would think he would have said it looks exactly like your house. But it's only when a few of them go out later on in a group and the house owner goes out with them that he goes, guys, that's my house. And then that's when it becomes apparent that 
it really is another version of his house. But yes, you're right, it is, it's flagged up. Presumably some of them have only seen his house that night when they arrived, so they wouldn't recognise it again, especially again in, in the night with th- all the lights off. I think the reason why they're all meeting up, to come back to that point, is I think they're all, they're all old friends, but there's, there's a sense of reunion about it, that maybe they yes. haven't seen each other for a few years. Some of them haven't, Definitely. anyway, haven't seen each other for a while. So they're having a reunion, and maybe the comet that, that's going, that's, that's passing over maybe that's been something that's prompted them maybe to get together mm-hmm. maybe there are people having comet parties i think we're supposed to think it's a suburb of la i think is is the subtext is it so, la or san francisco it's somewhere down there something i read and this might be on wikipedia actually is some some people have seen it as a, as a satire of um, la social life uh-huh I don't know. I mean, that would probably only mean something if you... Maybe there are specific LA points in there, I don't know. But I, th- I think I th- that's where I've got the idea of LA. But it's certainly... It's 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 somewhere that's quite nicely suburban. And these are all professional types. It's West Coast. Oh, It's certainly that, West Coast. I, I would say, yeah. I, I thought it was San Francisco. I just thought I heard some one of them mention that at some mm, point. Okay. But I was trying to figure out where it was supposed to be. In fact, I meant to look it up, actually. It does feel more they're LA, They're quite high actually. up, aren't they? It looks like oh, they're overlooked. They, they, they when they go outside, it looks like they're fairly high and overlooking a city. I'm not sure where I got where I met, I filled in that gap myself, but I, that's the impression I got, is that they're, uh, they're a bit higher than the main conurbation. In a typical suburb, uh, you know, you wouldn't be surprising if house after house was built on exactly the same floor plan mm, and model, true. would it? That would be perfectly normal. So that may have uh, led to the confusion for the guests of the dinner party early on. I quite liked the little pivot points and the props that were used to timestamp events in the past in the movie because that becomes critical. You know, at some point they realise that they're being replicated or they're replicas of somebody else. So they want to preserve their knowledge of their own home. And so the crack phones and the messages left and the boxes at the door that arrive at the door, uh, they're all quite cleverly put in there with significance that helps us reach a conclusion about what is actually going on at the end. Yeah, something I liked about that as well is it becomes fairly obvious that there's something weird going on quite early. Very so it's not weird, as though yeah. it's not as though there's one person going, there's something weird happening here, guys, and nobody believes them. They all believe it fairly quickly. Because I was going to say, um, when you were say, when you were saying Rick that there's the one character whose name I believe uh, she's called M, is is driving to the party and it passes by without incident. There is one thing, which is that her phone screen cracks while she's on the phone. Her yes. phone cracks. To him. Yeah. Uh, she suddenly she, yeah. uh, the, the signal goes and she goes oh and then suddenly we hear a noise and then her screen's cracked for you know for no obvious reason mm. and then throughout the party well fairly early on in the party people start having issues with phones and the internet goes out and that sort of thing so the communications all starts to go fairly quickly and then one of the other characters has a cracked phone screen and that's when we start to realise Hugh, uh, Hugh the tall guy Hugh, Hugh, Hugh yeah. the big and then fella. critically later on it's not cracked anymore is it that's right. One of the phones. Because he's not the same. Because he's not the same. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert. Actually, there are infinite numbers of them, uh, potentially, in this suburb, in this uh, faceless suburb. And when they go out to see what's going on in the other houses, whoever comes back, they pass through, what do they call it? A, a roulette wheel? Oh, and hang on. I wrote it down because there's a beautiful description of it. They come out um, some, somewhere different completely. A zone of confusion. A zone of confusion, <laughs> yes. An area extra dark, they describe it. They pass through a Phil Collins album. 
<laughs> it's a weird zone darker than the rest. Darker than the rest. So they pass, the, they pass through a bit, of, a bit of dark that is darker than the rest of the dark. This doesn't actually come across on the screen, though, because when they go outside, no, everything's no, actually illuminated, doesn't. as though there are streetlights. Yeah, I was going to say... Did you see that as well? I mean, obviously, filming dark scenes for movies is difficult anyway, and they're quite often filmed during the day, day for night, aren't yeah. they? With a blue filter on them. In this movie, of course, the idea, the conceit is that the power has gone out. Yes. You know, the whole block is without power, but it's obviously going to be very difficult to arrange that for an $80,000 film. <laughs> they did some reshoots for this film, and one of the actresses changed her hair, and they had to get a wig made, and I think that wig cost more than like the entire first day of shooting. <laughs> so they're not going to be able to afford to shut down an entire city block's worth of power supply. No, there were other problems as well, because there were other films being made at the same time. Yeah, I read and, that too. Yeah, I think an advert yeah. as well was being filmed, so they had to miss An advert was being filmed. Yeah, they had issues with... It, must, it must be LA, it must be LA, mustn't it? I would think so. Well, it must be filmed in LA, even if they tried to set it elsewhere. Yeah. So for $50,000, I thought they did a really good job with the time music, Galaxies by Laura Veers. Yeah, that was nice. Excellent. An excellent an excellent piece of music to end with. Yeah. Although they don't start off with start off with It's a Mystery by Toy Wilcox, do they? And they should have done, really, because it, <laughs> it is a complete mystery. So as well as time stamping time stamping objects through the movie for our reference to help us keep up with quite complex but entertaining plot. Uh, you were saying, where are they from? Are they from LA? Are they from San Francisco? But there's very because the, I think because of the uh, the dialogue is so improvised, uh, it's a it's a real time stamp of from when it was made. You know, not just the things, not just the fact they've got landlines and and that kind of thing, but they're talking about a feeling vortex. And one of the girls, one of the ladies rather, is having a cleanse. Yeah, oh, and gosh, the cleanse. Yeah. But wait a minute, the cleanse involves passion flower and ketamine. That's very, <laughs> very <laughs> 2013. You know what I mean? It's a rescue remedy, isn't it? She's got a rescue remedy. Yes, she rescue describes remedy. it as a rescue remedy, and she goes on about but Feng Shui, doesn't she? If in I the call house her Feng Shui, I don't know her name. Yeah, so Mrs. Feng Shui. But the men all tie their scarves in that tie kind of way that uh, only posh people in Britain do. Media people talking about booking flights, you know, so it's very 2013, like booking flights. You just press a button these days to hang on your phone. True. Yeah, you're right. It's obviously, I mean, I guess the director is writing and, and, and producing this film from his own experience, but it's certainly a particular class and demographic well, of people. Captured quite well. Think, the yeah. ketamine thing does give rise to a, a, a funny early moment as well, which is uh, when she says, oh, it's just a little rescue remedy I made. It's got some echinacea, it's got some passion flowers, some ketamine. And, she, and, somebody, and then a, a, a few seconds later, she says, did you say ketamine? That's that's a, a that's a horse tranquilizer, isn't it? And and, uh, and she goes, oh yeah, but it's only in a very tiny, tiny, tiny amount. And then when the next group of guests arrive, it's the it's the host character. He goes, hey, you guys want any wine, cheese, ketamine? And then it cuts out. It, it cuts out. Which I thought was just absolutely lovely. Just the way I thought it was a beautiful little little thing to do. Shall I give a list of who the who the characters are? Because they all relate to each other as well in some way. So shall I shall I just go through who we've got? <laughs> in this film because there aren't that there aren't many of them sure i was just going to say though about uh, the ketamine thing of course that presence of that drug gives rise to this whole kind of subplot about whether or not she spikes yes. the food or she's given it all to them and this is all a hallucination you know it presents a plausible explanation that they're all imagining this in a shared kind of mass drug hallucination about it all you know a cute trick uh, and i'll come back to that later actually 
Uh, particularly if we want to talk about other movies we want to watch. Sorry, yeah, Alistair. Yeah, if you want to go okay. through the characters, I do. You've got yeah. names, do you? Rather I thought than it, well, I wrote, <laughs> Yeah, I wrote, well, we can do, we can do that. Well, I, I wrote them down because uh, I thought that it's quite. It, talk, in the latter half of the film, it gets confusing as to whose house which which people belong to. So I thought I'm going. I tried drawing a map at one point, which apparently is what the writer did. He had a he drew a map of of uh, or a chart of where everybody was and which house they were from, and that's how he kept some coherence to his vision of things. So right, so the first character we see is M oh. and um she's she's a dancer. She's a dancer. Yes. So she's she's the one we see driving towards the party. And her boyfriend is called Kevin and he she's on the phone to Kevin. She's on the phone to Kevin. The, the tension between them is that he's about to go off on a four month business business trip to Vietnam and she doesn't want to go with him. So that that no. He's off he's to, off Nam, to yeah, and she doesn't want to go, so that gives rise to some tension between them. Then the host of the party is Mike, who is an actor. Played by a low-rent Matt LeBlanc. Oh, do you know who he is? Do you know who, who the low-rent Matt Somebody LeBlanc is? Somebody famous these days. In this, the yeah. film, Incoherence, Mike says that yeah. he was in Roswell, the TV series. And it's I true. wondered whether the actor was actually in Roswell. Or whether the- well, do you know? No. I do. <laughs> no, I don't. I did. I, I was going to look it up, but I, but I didn't. There's a lovely. I've never watched Roswell. Actually, there's a no. very nice little joke there, which is that um, that this is when right. Let me just go through the characters and then let, let me come back to that because <laughs> otherwise, if I mention all these other names, otherwise it won't make any sense. So yeah, Mike is the host and he's an actor. His wife Lee appears to be someone who is an internet expert because they make some reference to her when when their internet's out. They say yeah, but aren't you don't you run the internet or something like that? So she. I think we're supposed to think that she's a, an internet expert. I think she, they do mention a company that she's supposed to work for, and I can't remember who it was. It might have been Cisco. Somebody. She's not the Feng Shui lady. No, nope. she's a long Feng Shui lady. Is short-haired, and she's called Beth. Ah, right. Yeah. And she appears to her her occupation, if it's ever mentioned, appears to be things like Feng Shui and homeopathy. Her husband is yeah, called she's a new age, a new age. She's a new age type. Yeah. Uh, her husband is called Hugh. He's the big man. Hugh. And then the other yeah. two people that come along are their friend Amir, and he brings along as his plus one a lady called Laurie. Who is the ex-girlfriend of Keith. Keith. Kevin. And that, of course, that you've instantly got some potential tensions there. So that's a, that's a good one to throw in the mix. And she's the outsider. That was very well done, actually. That was, oh, that beautifully quite, done. And, and, yeah, and she, she's the outsider in the group. So she's the one who, at the dinner table, gives them gives the opportunity for asking about who's doing what and, and, and let, gives us a bit of an in into people's lives. Now, the guy playing Amir yeah. was one of the writers... Yeah, he acted like as the inside guy, trying to guide things and 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 so on. That's right, helping helping oh. the plot along. Yeah. In terms of the names of these characters, I mean, I was going to make a comment, but having discovered it was all pretty much improvised, I might want to rein that back in. But my, my observation was, do you know when movies get people to say each other's name in the dialogue at the beginning of a movie, so so that the, the audience knows their names? They explicitly didn't do this in this one, and I thought it was quite annoying because. I, I really wanted to know their names. I, they, they only cropped up maybe 30 or 40 minutes into the movie. So I thought maybe they should have dialed down on the naturalism yeah. and said, hey, you know, make sure in the first scene you say each other's names kind of thing. I thought it came out. I must admit there was one There was one point where I did get a bit, I wasn't sure who, who, was who? one of them yeah. was. When they were talking about somebody having gone outside and I'm thinking, oh, hang on, which one is that? I, was, I must admit I did get a little confused about that. But the names of the characters do also re- reflect something which I think is a bit of an improv trait, which is that they're, with a couple of exceptions. God, I thought you were going to say they're all like Greek, Greek no, mythological no, 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 no. characters. No, there's no, there's no subtext as such, but there's just a little... 
little kind of device which I think is used in improv, which is that, with a couple of exceptions, they're all actually variations on the actor's real names. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's that's very common in improv. Yeah. So M you want, is her you real name is Emily Fox. Is Emily? Lee is Lorene Scafaria. Beth is Elizabeth Grayson. Oh. Hugh is Hugo Armstrong, and Laurie is Lauren Mayer. There are a couple of exceptions. Um, Amir is played by Alex Manoogian and Mike is Nicholas Brendan. Oh, and Kevin is played by Maury Sterling. People may be familiar with, he was um, a mainstay of the TV series Homeland, the the series starring Claire Danes as a CIA agent. Um, he he yeah, was a yeah. main a main character. But you were going to tell us about yeah. the pound shop Matt LeBlanc. Okay. <laughs> pound shop Matt LeBlanc. Okay, his character is called Mike, and he's the actor. Now he is the actor is called Nicholas Brendan, and his when in, when they're at dinner, and Laurie says, "So so you're you're an actor." She's obviously not met Mike before. So I love this palocalypse. <laughs> it's called a palocalypse. A palocalypse. Yes, that's right. That's the that's a, a genre what term, I was isn't most it? Most nostalgic about 2013. Was the fact uh, Beth Feng Shui woman? There existed in her character two aspects that, in today's world, where we both we, we all hang out in what is the the waiting room to the railway station information that is that is the social media thingy and, and treat it like our front rooms, you know, like our living rooms. We all hang out in this public space and exhibit our private thoughts, and so we get attacked and our thoughts become bifurcated and separated from each other. There exists in her this kind of duality that no longer exists in people. She's kind of like liberal and progressive, but she also believes in ridiculous, you know, X-Val conspiracy theories, you know. And I think these days that person would, one side of them will be hacked to death in the public arena that they that we present ourselves in these days. But she's kind of balanced, isn't she? I mean, she's idiotic in, in both senses, perhaps. Or not. I don't, I don't, sorry, I don't mean that. That was a throwaway. Point. It was a more tolerant time, wasn't it? Yeah, what I'm saying is, you know, whether she's right or wrong, you know, she's quite balanced in whether she's right or She doesn't really care because obviously... She doesn't live in the times that we live in. Anyway, digression on digression. I'm still waiting to yeah, hear okay. about about Matt LeBlanc, less, lesser known as twin brother. <laughs> Laurie, oh, oh no, twin brother. There's a good thing. Okay, I'm glad you said that. Right. So Laurie asks when she's asking about who, what everyone's doing. She asks Mike, the actor. Oh, what is there anything I might have seen you in? And he went, uh, Yeah, yeah, I used to be on TV. I used to be on TV. I was, um, and she said, Oh, well, what was it? Was it? And it said, Oh, I was in a show called Roswell. And she says, oh, Roswell, for anyone who doesn't know, is was a, a really popular TV series in the early noughties. Mm-hmm. Would that be right, Rick? Which mm, was so. centred around the town of Roswell in New Mexico, which, of course, is the, the site of the, the, the famous purported alien UFO crash. And it does, in fact feature some characters who are uh, children of the aliens that, that crashed in, in that. And it was they, they were mostly young actors that were in it. Now, what he says... Young actors with really big eyes and grey skin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the typecast. Um, and so Mike says, I was in Roswell. And she says... She, and she, this is great because she looks at him and she goes, Really? I don't remember that. You remember yes. which, which episodes were you in? And he says, Oh, I was in all. Are you going to tell me that Beth's, Beth's actor was in Roswell? No, I'm going to tell you something been slightly out, better. Alistair, sorry to interrupt, but had she been outside at this yeah. point? Because no. she may have <laughs> no. come back from a reality where he wasn't the actor in Roswell. He was in Roswell. Well, this is the thing, though. It is an alternate reality because mm. he wasn't in Roswell. But, but he says. He says I was <laughs> I was one of the main guys, and and the others go and he, she looks at him again and goes, 
really? And uh, Look, and this is a lovely bit of improv in action. Yeah. This is really actory, but it's very improv. And the other characters go, yeah, yeah. Do you not remember? He was the, you know, he was the, he was wow. the guy. He was the guy, the main guy, it's the main improv. guy in Roswell. And he says, I was in all of them. It's what it's what made me, it's made my career start. start but also people career. do and, like and dinner all... parties also. You know, if there's eight people at dinner party, if there's two or three of you, you're probably not going to lie. But if it's a crowded dinner party, you might, you know, yeah. throw a few pokers in there, you know. So I think the idea is that was Mike, we're supposed to believe that Mike was in oh, Roswell. Okay. I think we're supposed to believe it. Mike, the character, was 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 in Roswell because they all say that. And she just and she, this is where the 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 actress playing Laurie does a lovely save that's an improv save where she says, "Do you know it's always strange when you see actors, even the ones you're really familiar with, when they're not in character, and when you see them in the flesh, oh. they always look different from how you expect." I thought I was really clever, really quick, yeah. and then the other characters go, "Yeah, but it was a long time ago as well. He's filled out a bit now, hasn't he?" And it and it was real, you know, it was really nicely done. But the thing is that Nicholas Brendan, the actor playing Mike wasn't in Roswell, but he was one of the main characters in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, that's that guy. Yeah, he was um, Xander Harris in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, of course, this this was a nice bit of irony for the viewer because when he says, yeah, I I used to be on TV, I was uh, in a a very famous TV programme, everyone's expecting him to say Buffy, but of course he's not playing Nicholas Brendan, he's playing Mm. a character. So I reckon he threw out Roswell as a complete... Just as an off-the-cuff thing, you know, he's obviously supposed to have been an actor. He'll have known that. So, you know, was was Beth's actor was she screwing up the first rule of improv? You know, the yes and thing. Oh, where you don't say no. Yeah. Why? When did she say no? Well, you're saying, you know, she said she didn't recognise him. Oh no, Laurie. She just said, well, no, because she did say, well, what were you in? She does, um, and I think it threw her because I think she was probably expecting him to say Buffy. So it probably yeah, threw her a bit, and then she so that uh, instead of going, oh yeah, of course, I think it was really good that she yeah. kind of gave a bit. Uh, you know, she didn't just go, oh, I don't remember that. Uh, you know, and it was very nice. Then, so that's where they really showed their improv acting chops as a group of people. So, so these little conversational gambits or uh, little vignettes. I mean, uh, they're all they all cut with uh, they all fake immediate cut to black, and then two second pause, and then maybe another another little sn- snatch. Or snippet of the dinner party, and I thought that was quite good because it kind of presages the blackouts that are going to come later. But did, did you read the bit on Wikipedia about the blackouts? No. About the screen fading no. to black. Right. No. It says here, I'm quoting directly from the Wikipedia page on coherence. It says the movie cuts to black at two minutes, three, five, seven, nine, nineteen, twenty-seven, thirty-two, thirty-four. <sighs> 1 hour 6, 1 hour 18, 1 hour 22, and 1 hour 23 minutes. The movie's director has said that those cuts signify something, but hasn't said what they signify. Spooky. There was no cut to black around 16 minutes, which was (laughs) the point of divergence between realities, although the house was plunged into darkness due to an electricity cut. There was no cut to black at 17 minutes when the characters all switched from a house without a broken glass to a house with a broken glass, and no cut to black at 45 minutes when only Mike switched to a different reality. An interesting little conundrum there. Is there any significance so to the mean... numbers? I'm no good with numbers. Is there any but significance the to those numbers? I'll tell you that much. I was going to say, I couldn't, de- I couldn't detect a sequence. Uh, you'd have to look it up in the Encyclopedia of Integer Number Sequences, which exists. And it's very exciting. Does it mean then that between those black 
sections, we might be looking at different versions mm-hmm. of the house. They may all be having the same conversation, up to a point, of course. But that's a possibility. You know, you're seeing different conversations. That's a possibility, isn't yeah. it? Maybe we, yeah, maybe the the divergences between their behaviours and actions only occur at those moments. Maybe they're moments where there is a possibility of a difference. Maybe we ought to explain. Oh, hang on a minute. I've just remembered something else about about uh, Mike's character, Rick. You mentioned something about him having a twin. Well, it would be useful if you had a twin, wouldn't it? Because it would make it easier later in the film when he has a fight with himself. Well, I'm glad you said that, because actually he does. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered whether they'd, they'd cast all these actors, who are not super well-known, apart from the fact that they'd be cheap, because they had twins, because it would make the whole, you know, having multiple people a lot easier, wouldn't it? Well, in that case, they do, because they're the only two characters that you, you see together on screen at the same time. You, you see two mics having a fight mm-hmm. with each other, and yes. you see two yeah. mics tied up next to each other as well. And um, yes, you do. the other yeah. mic, the one who isn't Nicholas Brendan, is played by Kelly Donovan, who is Nicholas Brendan's identical twin brother. With a different name? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. There are also there are other things as well. This was this was presumably to keep the uh, the budget down, I would think. But um, there's an actress cast as just as an extra who plays uh, a double of M, and she's played by Maury Sterling's wife, <laughs> who has the fabulous okay. name <laughs> Alexis Boozer. <laughs> well. M, of course, I think we have to explain, don't we, a key plot point. M knows quite a bit about stuff, doesn't she? She knows about other comet events. In Finland. She's quite well uh, well read and educated for a dancer, isn't she? Yeah, she talks about a fin- Finnish comet in 1923. Anyone know whether that's a real thing? Well, she says later that, on that it was the same comet. <laughs> Miller's Comet yeah. returning. Yeah, but this time it's passing by more closely. Mm. But uh, I, I, when she's describing the Finnish event, she does say that it was a comet. She mm. uh, she knows about the Tunguska event. Now, that's definitely real, of course. Yeah. She makes great play of the fact that it didn't even hit the ground. But that's actually, I mean, that's pretty common for uh, bolides. No, yes. meteorites. No, I don't know. Meteorites. Those things. Uh, and there wouldn't generally be comets, would they? No. Necessarily. I don't know, but we know what the Tunguska one was. But Comets typically don't hit the ground. Yeah, they, they'd made be made of... of uh, less, less dense, less heft. There's less stuff. heft in yes, there. Large meteorites don't hit the ground in the sense that we understand anyway. The Barringer Crater, you know, the large thing, is it in Arizona? Arizona, yeah. It was discovered by a guy called Barringer who, was my, who ended up setting up mining operations around the crater. See, everyone had thought that it was a volcanic event yeah. that had caused that crater. They didn't at the time, they didn't people didn't have any idea that meteorites could hit the earth and make a crater. But he was convinced that it was a meteorite and he was looking for the deposit of iron that the meteorite was probably made of mm. and he started drilling. Now, he drilled fruitlessly. He was right, it was a meteor that mm. had made the crater. But what they didn't understand at the time is that when a meteor of that size comes in, the energy, the kinetic energy of that rock or block of iron or whatever is sufficient to completely vaporize it. Yeah. So that it, it the solid mass does not hit the uh, ground at all. What shock hits wave, it yeah. is a shock wave caused by the the release of energy. Um, the kinetic energy being turned into, you know, vaporizing. Interesting. The big, the big ones never hit the ground. 
uh, usually because they're yeah. coming at a much higher speed often. I mean, there's no suggestion that Miller's Comet in the film is going to hit the Earth or anything. No. I think she's only mentioning Tunguska because they want a bit of peril. So that when Hugh says that his friend, who knows theoretical physicists, uh, told him that if anything weird happened, he should give him a call. Uh, and that is the prompt for Hugh to go out and try to find a working telephone. Yeah. Because they don't have a landline in this house. But you're right. The Tunguska thing was it was it was it was just as a reference to other weird things caused by f- things possibly coming close to or Im- and or impacting with with Earth. I think was the was the reason why she mentioned that. So yeah, a couple of movies back, we watched we watched Color Out of Space, didn't we? And Rick, yeah. you were making a, yes, we talked about you were a making meteor a very right good there. point about H.P. Lovecraft often documenting a terrifying descent into madness, and this patently didn't happen here. I got kind of like Manson yeah. family vibes of this whole thing. You know, they're in the Hollywood Hills, presumably. Uh, and it, it kind of went a bit Manson-esque in moments in where their thoughts were going. But they're saved from madness because Huey, the man with the beard, his brother is, is a successful physicist of some kind. And he's got a book in the back of his car. No, he, he hangs he hangs around with scientists, <laughs> is what they said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, weird scientists. Yeah, <laughs> They're very tolerant people. Um, and uh, they can almost accept scientists <laughs> as being normal people, but not quite. But I think quite he tall. was more of like a philo- I think he might be more into psychology or something yeah. because they said they'd got they'd got when they get, finally get his his book out of his of the car. This is a bit confusing, but there's there's some lecture notes or something yes. that he'd prepared, which which explained that there. Are, well, well, that's when we get into the coherence <laughs> yeah. thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. This is when it. So comes the name of the movie comes from this idea, doesn't it? I was going to say something about comets, which is. That they're, they're, of course, that they they are have long been regarded by um, cultures portents as being yeah portents and omens doom. of bad things happening. Yeah. Um, like even there's the famous um, image of a comet in the Bayer Tapestry, which shows it's shown going overhead, possibly Halley's comet, seen as a as a portent of doom for the English at oh. the Battle of Hastings. So yeah, they've been yes, long been right. seen as a as a as a, as a yeah as a as a symbol of very very bad things happening. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, Hugh's friend has got these lecture notes tucked in this book, which they figure out is left in the car, and this becomes mm. critical because they end up figuring out that other households, or at least the other household they're aware of at the time, might also be looking yes. for the same notes. And they don't necessarily want them to find them because it might give them the idea that they exist. And that might give them the idea that they're somehow in conflict. That bit is a bit confusing and a bit difficult to yeah. figure out, wasn't they it? They suddenly become Why very belligerent, don't Mike, they? Mike, yes. Mike says, if I'm thinking yeah. of killing them, then Mike yeah. over there is thinking of killing us. I need to go and kill yeah. myself, kind of thing. That's it. That's right. Yeah, but who was thinking of killing them? Well, Nobody until you just mentioned it. Well, there is an, now we all are. There is a nice <laughs> bit though, there, though, which is that Kevin turns to him and says, Why the heck would you be thinking that? And then Mike looks at him and says, you know why. And then Kevin goes, oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is another, I think Kevin had forgotten something. I think what we're supposed to believe is that Mike um, has a very bad history with alcohol Ah, and becoming violent. Yeah, they telegraph that. Yeah, because he says, if the other Mike in the other house is drinking, then, and then everybody goes, oh, right. So then I think we're supposed to think that a drunk Mike could become, you know, a raging axe murderer um so yeah but a lot of weight hinges on that point yeah. right uh, the whole idea that they should go and get the book before the other yeah. 
uh, Household mm-hmm. finds it, for instance, hinges on that idea. But they, at that point, they've got no inkl- inkling that the other household is different significantly. I- indeed, they're given some of the information they have would suggest that things are playing out yes. in exactly the same way. Mm. It's only later on that they start to get this idea that things are happening differently. When uh, they say they saw guys with the wrong coloured yes. glow sticks. Glow sticks. I was going to say, let's talk about the glow sticks. Because that was the way that they were going to sort out the the darkness problem. Was that Mike produces boxes of glow sticks. Um, with That's why I thought it was San Francisco, you know why. Because, <laughs> right. But it's probably true in LA as well, isn't it? But the uh, I remember staying in a hotel in either San Francisco or LA, and every hotel room had a little earthquake pack. Oh, and one yeah, of the things yeah. in the earthquake pack yes. was a glow stick. I th- oh, I see. And as a right. consequence of that, I always I now have a glow stick by my bed oh, in case we oh, have an earthquake. Cool. <laughs> didn't, didn't, um, didn't somebody say, oh, these are all left over from Burning Man or something? That, that, that he's, uh, Possibly. That he's got them all... because. They have a history of ravers, but I love the way he comes back and he says, "We have red glow sticks, blue glow sticks, and green glow sticks." <laughs> <laughs> and everybody in this house, because he opens a box of blue glow sticks, so they are all they're That's all right. wearing the blue glow sticks. And this is one of the ways where it were it, it helps us to identify which house people are from. Because when when a party of them goes out and sees and they go through the patch of weird darkness that's darker than the rest of the darkness and then they see the other house when they're on the way back they see the exact same grouping of people but they're wearing red glow sticks yeah, and that's right and they freak out and it reminded me respective houses. reminded me of uh, uh Shaun of the Dead <laughs> where the party of, of of our heroes see an equivalent party of heroes <laughs> going the opposite way that's right <laughs> That's right, yeah. And the, 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 these two groups of the, with the different glow sticks, they do just basically look at each other for a bit and then scarper back to the houses that they think they've come <laughs> yeah. from. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, which is quite quite bizarre. The book and the lecture notes that they find clue them into the possibility that it's all to do with a quantum mechanical Decoherence. And they talk about... Obviously, they talk about Schrodinger's cat mm. at this point, don't they? It's a bit muddled, mm. isn't it, really, the way people treat this, perhaps understandably. Mm. Schrodinger's cat, of course, is the idea that you put a cat in this box. Schrodinger posited a thought experiment where you put a cat in a box with a device that will either poison the cat or not poison the cat based on the radioactive decay of an element. The key thing about this bit is the radioactive decay of an atom is not predictable in the normal sense of the word. It's strictly quantum mechanical effect, wherein there is a probability of it having happened, but you can't say with certainty before it happens exactly when and so consequently at any given time you can state that that atom is in a superposition of states sort of decayed or not decayed as a consequence in Schrodinger's rather elaborate thought experiment now a whole cat inside a sealed box is in an alive or dead state you don't know until you look in the box, you've got no way of predicting it. Schrodinger expressed this as a way of showing his discomfort with some of the consequences of the yeah. philosophy, the Copenhagen interpretation of uh, quantum mechanics, which doesn't really seem to accord with our understanding of reality. I mean, I don't think anyone seriously believes that a cat in that situation would be both alive and dead until we open the box. I think we're all quite certain that the cat is already dead or alive long beforehand. Um, according to whether or not the atom is decayed. 
there may be an epistemic problem about understanding whether the cat is alive or dead. But that interpretation of the philosophy of quantum mechanics is only one of several interpretations. There have been others. And one of them is the Everett Many Worlds theory, in which events like this kind of cause the universe to split mm-hmm. into two. You have one universe in which the cat is alive and one universe in which the cat is dead. And in that universe, you don't have to, you don't have to collapse wave functions. You, uh, you just get an awful lot of multiple universes that can never interact, most importantly. This is also a bit of a philosophical dodge in a way, isn't it, though? Because it, it does seem a bit... By philosophical dodge, you mean utter rot. <laughs> well, it seems profligate with universes, doesn't it? Well, universes that we can never it. see but anyway, it, it, so moot entirely. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's not a falsifiable test, is it? Is it not the, the, the part of the, the thought experiment in Schrodinger's cat? I know this is how they put it in the film, is that... Until you check inside the box, the cat is both alive and dead. That's the common way to in, express in, it. In the yeah. terminology, in the kind of the frame of reference of quantum mechanics. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. But, of course, really, one interpretation and one way that people get a bit derailed by quantum physics is there was a, a movement or a moment where people said, oh, well, of course, the important thing is consciousness. And when you open the box, man, it's consciousness experiencing the cat dead that makes or aliveness alive dead, yeah. that has changed the physics. Yeah, exactly. This is bullshit. And that's, you know, that's newage all over again. <laughs> you know, that's uh, Feng Shui and, uh, and rescue remedies again. But actually, what's going on is the cat itself is a sensing device and instrument, as is the thing that's looking at the mm-hmm. decaying atom. And all of those things are systems, complicated systems, which are going to collapse the wave function because they're going to cause, they're going to become entangled with the system. So the cat is actually already alive or dead because it itself is experiencing that decay event through the electronics and machinery that Schrodinger's put in the box with it. But uh, I suppose the philosophy is that you can build macro systems that are bigger than quantum yeah. systems that mm. have this superposition. And I know there's been work going on, theoretical work, to try and do this. But it, uh, it isn't the case that the cat is actually alive or dead. Oh, sorry, both alive and dead until you open the box. That's clearly nonsense. In a way, this film is really expressing the the Everett Many yes. Worlds theory of quantum mechanics. Uh, what it's trying to indicate is some for some reason this comet is causing these different universes to uh, be able to interact with one another through this weird dark and patch in the middle of the street. And all weirdly to be on the yeah. same 2D plane, which if you think about but not, it... But mm. not, not at the same time. We we've figured out actually quite early on in the movie that it's about a forty five minute delay between the first house and at least one of the other houses, oh. uh, and because that's quite nice, I quite like that the way they did that. You know, they start doing things that fulfil like the promise of other things, weird things that they experienced. Like one of the first things that they get, which tells them something really weird is going on, is they find that metal box outside the other house and they bring it back to this house. They open it up. It's got a ping pong bat in it for some reason and pictures of all of them with numbers on the back and they don't know why that should be or how this other house has got pictures of them, one of which seems to have been taken on that very night and no one remembers taking that picture. But later on in the movie, I presume it's about 45 minutes later, 
they come up with this idea of trying to identify which of these many houses they're at by putting a metal box outside their house with a random object in it. And they number the backs of photographs <laughs> of all of them by rolling a dice and then r- writing that can number just, on the back. Can I just stop you? So that they should be able to... I, well, right. they say, look, look, what are the chances that we could roll the same number? And it's quite high, you know, one in six, you know, but they have five dice. They don't decide to roll five dice at once and sum them or even roll five dice twice. No, no, we'll just have one die each. It was incredibly stupid on their part. True. But yeah, but they put one, they do one dice for each photograph, don't they? So it's eight it's six it to is, the eight. But still, it? they could they could really reduce the odds by rolling five die and some of them for each person. But they don't. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, so, but that, that's nice. Uh, uh, in a way, that sort of closes yes. the loop, doesn't it? The way that things that they do uh, later are the weird things that they experienced earlier on. And I actually thought this is the weakest mm-hmm. part of the whole movie: is that they introduce uh-huh. more than one other house. I thought it would have been cute or nice if like the two there were two realities that kind of interacted and you know the one kind of closed the loop of the other and introducing sort of an infinitude of other ones yeah it maybe gets around another problem that introduces but I thought it, it made it the whole story confusing, less confusing I think um, but I, it also um, allows for the working out of what I think, if, you know, if you're asking the question, if you're going to ask the question at some point, what is this film about? Then, um, <laughs> what is no, this film I think about? It's a bit, I think it's quite, not, it's quite hard. With I'm not going to ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is its own story, but um, I think part of what's set up with the character M quite early on is that she's very indecisive because she's not making a decision about whether or not mm-hmm. to go to mm. uh, Vietnam with, with her boyfriend Kevin, and she just says to him. Uh, she says, I don't want to make the wrong decision. I see. Her yes. backstory is also about her indecision, isn't it? She was, she had rehearsed for a big role in a dance production. At the last moment, they get like a top name dancer into the role and offer her the position of understudy. And she, she describes that she ummed and awed about it. And then they gave the understudy role to somebody else. And then it turns out, of course, that that top name dancer didn't take the role, and the understudy well, Emma had actually devised the, the the show herself. I think it was actually her creation, um, but she'd uh, she mm-hmm. she got somebody in to play the to do the to take the lead role. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's correct. And then somebody makes the observation. It might be Laurie, who's the kind of the fall guy of this group. She says, "Oh my God!" So that means that the famous. The, the dancer who's now famous is li- has your life. She's leading your life. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think you cracked. And you cracked the safe for two of you. Um, when she says, like, "I'm not saying no to going to Vietnam," it's not a no. And she and he just says, "Baby, not a yes." It becomes a no. So, in other words, there's there are forces external to you that yes. make wow. decisions for you, or where your nice your your ability to make a decision starts falling. If you can't act upon, so yes, if you can't act upon it, you probably Emma, start to feel point, the weight of it, wouldn't you? Oh, there's also another bit, isn't there? When they go outside to check on the cars or some for some reason to look for the book or something, she goes to her car, she opens the glove compartment, she gets out a ring that was significant to her uh, that I think a boyfriend might have given her, and uh, as she leaves the car, 
her boyfriend is standing on the sidewalk close by and she goes over and talks to him and uh, initially he's uh, you know he, he remembers giving her the ring that she's fished out of the glove compartment but then she mentioned something that had just happened and he looks at her like he's seen a ghost and says nothing for an, an uncomfortable mm. long period of time and she obviously realizes that's not her kevin or keith whatever his name is kevin keith uh, that's a cute moment i thought that was really effective so what you're moment. saying is that this whole and thing she- is essentially sci-fi as allegory it's not making a sci. It's if not it's even sci-fi, even, but it's not making a sci-fi point, is it? It's just there to, to oh, no, a very strong gallery, though. I mean, you, you've, I mean, you've picked up on the on what it's trying to say. I think quite clearly, you know, it's it's all about the the uh, the the mirrors of our mind, isn't it? Essentially, it, I don't know whether you read. I've read it on the IMDb page, but actually, they get the concepts of coherence and decoherence. Oh. 180 degrees the wrong way around yes. when they explain it in the film. Which made me thought, think I was going mad uh, or wonder which universe I was in. As did the feeling of having seen this film well, before. How, how well. bright do you think these people whether... are supposed to be? I mean, okay, so they work it all out, you know, that they're in some sort of uh, multiverse with uh, lots of heavy hints from the props around them. Uh, but they're not clever enough after they first split up not to split up again. You know, they make the classic Scooby Doo yeah. mistake, don't they? So they're not that bright, are they? You know, after the, after the, after they realise shit, we go out and we go through a weird vortex of change. We shouldn't really go there alone. Let's go, go, do, go and do it together, kind of thing. Or let's not do it at all. But they still carry on doing it. So it's not clear what one's motivation should be in that situation. If you if you found yourself in a situation where there was another version of you down the street, would part of you not think, well, maybe I am not I'm the version that's not supposed to be here, and I'm going to disappear when the comet passes or whatever. Potentially, yeah. And if so, what would you do about that? I don't know. You're just going to sit and wait it out, see what happens, see if you disappear or not? Um, I think it's about time that we did scores for this, don't you think? Of the film. It, I mean, it is, it is quite a hard one to follow, what do you think? isn't it? Maybe it is a good time to do scores. This is the thing, isn't it? It's quite an intricately plotted thing. It is its own experience. It's difficult to explain or describe. You have to live it with them, I think. I was going to go one step further, sorry, and say it's about being your true self, which is problematic, isn't it? You know, when American growth mindset people say, oh, well, you know, you've got to be a true self, but you've got to be happy and you've got to change yourself to be happy. I mean, there's lots of contradictions involved there, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever it means. But yeah, I concur with you. I'm just taking a little bit further. You've got got a character who has problems with decisiveness. And she's then put into a situation where she can literally yes, yeah. see various different outcomes based on different decisions that are made. And mm-hmm. then she decides, right, I'm going to have this one. And I think she, she's put alongside people who are um, actors. So you've got an actor, so he's someone who pretends to be other people. Um, you've got someone who works in technology. You've got uh, uh, what's uh, uh, Beth, who's a newager. So she's into the whole idea of you know, being authentic and what have you, whereas M actually goes, God, no, I need to, this is the life I want, I'm going to have this one. And it involves an act of violence in in order to to Violence-ing. obtain that life. Yeah, yeah. Killing so her other selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, the film is saying that if you want to be decisive, you need actually to be a murderer. <laughs> to yourself, to your own personalities. 
Uh, yeah, or, or it's saying, oh, or maybe oh, it's I saying, see. you know, you can have multiple person personality disorder and, and, and function quite effectively. Huh? Anyway, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but uh, in terms of just one thing I, I thought about this is, is magic and Schrodinger's cat. And I was at the same time the other night when I was watching this, I was on the on on you know on the on the web, on the, the interweb, oh. and I was looking at Pendle witches, uh, which is magic and black cats. Paul, just a second. You were watching a movie for this podcast, and you thought, whilst whilst you're doing that, you're back no, to it was just by reading one pages about you know roughly the same time. Because I'm ex- no, no. It's a, we understand you don't take it seriously. No, it's a hobby of mine, the Pendle Witches. So I don't know if you know, but Malkin Tower, uh, which uh, was uh, the home of Demdike, or was the home of Demdike in the Assizes records, and they think they've located it. There's been hold, hold, stop. What's Demdike? Demdike is the primary witch of of the Pendle witches that were executed in Lancaster in Lancaster Lancaster Castle. Elizabeth and Devis. Device or Devises or devices, oh, right. or whatever she's called, and uh, the other one is Demdike. Uh, so, so she was she was Demdike. So Demdike apparently lived at Malkin Tower. Now Malkin, in terms of etymology and derivations, could mean a, a variety of things. But uh, so they, they, they think they've located it by accident because they were digging out a reservoir or whatever, and they did some geological surveys, including some geophys, and found some structures under there. And they dug it all out, and there's a preserved little, they think, 16th or 17th century cottage or farmhouse down there. And incredibly, there was a cat in a box. There was a cat that had been buried alive in a box inside the walls. How did they know it was buried alive? It was in a box, like in the walls. Yeah, but you maybe if the cat had died, you might put it in a little cat. But no, topic. standard practice to to rid your to rid your homestead or dwelling of evil was to it bury have a, little a live cat of in the, the walls. You know, it's, it's, it's well tested. <laughs> so, so I was just reminded of this when I was watching the movie. I thought, well, wow, that's you know, parallels abound. Anyway. So like, they know this lady's name was Demdike. Yes. Uh, and they know where she lived. Do you know the name of where she lived? Malkin Tower, yeah. And yeah, where they, they've but just they don't know where it is. Why don't well, they just, strangely, she a, where, they, where they've just discovered it is on a place called Malkin Farm. So so they did know where it was. I mean, or well, no one had looked very hard. Right? The Pendle area at the time well, was... Well, where the could Pen- it be? I don't know. Malkin Farm? Not. I don't know. But Maybe. <laughs> The Pendle area at the time was the Pendle Royal Forest, like the Bolum, uh, Bo- Bolton, the Bolum Forest is today. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a large deer forest. Small deer could live there too. And so, where Malkin was wasn't entire. It was never mentioned because it was it was a known Malkin Tower was a well known place at the time. So it wasn't actually attributed to being near a hamlet or being near a village. So well, you just look it up. I mean, the post office have a postcode for it. <laughs> She'd be on the electoral roll, wouldn't she? Well, a woman. Well, in the sixteenth, in the seventeenth century. <laughs> well, there. Are, I mean, there are two etymologies for Malkin. One, one, one could be Maltkin, a place where you make, you know, beer and that kind of thing. Or the other, Malkin, apparently, is a local Lancashire term for a really grotty place where. It was also which is also a so, uh, word for a slatten. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, did you watch the Simon? Yes. Ar- did you did you see the documentary? I think it's about a sh- Simon Armitage. That's on Amazon Prime. I didn't know the, no. the Lancashire. It's the yeah, Charles of the Lancashire witches. 
because Elizabeth Davis's daughter Janet testified. No way. Well, I think Janet was the one who started it all because she made a pet pet no, heart attack, sister. apparently. Allison. That was her sister. Um, and okay. then Janet testified Allison. against them later uh, because she didn't like them because they treated her really badly. Uh, but then later, years later, she was tried and executed as a witch herself. Yeah. So, you know, I think Beth in this movie should be careful and stay yeah, away like from the homeopathy. I like the witches too, because, of course, well, I, happens to witches. Myself, Paul, I grew up with Angle Hill. I could see it from my bedroom. And now, yes. out of my window here, I can see the castle. So, yeah, yeah, I'm right by the castle. Can so I can, I can see where they are alleged to have wow. done their where they died (laughs) brooding blunt and brutal Pendle Hill yes magnificent magnificent erection from the from the plains of if you you look at a map from above or an aerial photograph Pendle Hill the shape of it and also Longridge Fell it looks like it's two people lying down just an interesting coincidence I'm sure Ah. to do with the geological formation because Pendle Hill has the big end and then it tapers down towards the other end sadly and then yes <laughs> crudely drawn cock and balls yeah. so who've yeah. gone right off topic here <laughs> yeah, we're, we're yeah what we're talking about scores. it's but time for scores we'll talk oh, about sorry. Pendle which is sorry time, yeah. it, is but, it is interesting yeah yeah, yeah sorry Alistair you, you, I interrupted you sorry go back to what you were saying whatever it was <laughs> Alistair <laughs> <laughs> no, Alistair was unpacking the meaning of the film very well, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. so. Allegorical, essentially. Um, uh, decision making and knowing the options that are available to you, making a decision and then living with it and accepting responsibility, and that's what M doesn't do very well. She she's decisive later on, but because it's uh, yes. an unnatural, if you like, or uh, an unusual way of doing it, to put it mildly, she has to do an act of violence order to do so. In that sense, it's an existentialist allegory, because um, one of the key messages of mm-hmm. existentialism is that you have to accept responsibility for the decisions that you make. Otherwise, you're living in bad faith. Yeah. It's, uh, it certainly made me think of that. If we were to try and score this film, which is not all that easy. <laughs> Thank you for trying to corral us into, into, back into the rodeo, Richard. Look, yeah, well, I, well, before I score it, can I just say, I really like this movie because they only have reference to one scientist who's a friend of a brother. Yeah. So it really reminded me of the current British government, you know, <laughs> Oxford art graduates. Try like, trying to puzzle the things together. They don't, they don't even know what the scientists are saying, you know, run, you know, it, r- trying to run towards and manage somehow a, a massive viral emergency. So I like that. It reminded me of, of, of Boris and his friends, everything they're doing for the country. Also, I liked it because it reminded me in some sort of way of Canterbury Tales and the Decameron. It was like this enclosure and people telling stories at the beginning together. So I liked all of that. And for that reason, I'm going to score something about it very highly, but I'm not quite sure what yet. Uh, well, if we give it a science score, if you can do a science score. Well, three and a half. Oh, I mean, okay. I mean, all right. We don't need this scenario, and the scenario itself is a bit silly. They could walk into... A, a hall of mirrors, couldn't they, and get the same kind of thing? Really, they could have done it with some kind of magic. They could have done it with witchcraft. Pendle, witchcraft pendle, would be better, witch, I think. Yeah, witch yeah. style, couldn't they? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, certainly, we don't need the sci-fi here. Yeah, true. But it it feels right, though, doesn't it? It's modern witchcraft to yeah, okay, point four. Sky I'll score it four. 
Okay. okay Richard, what's your score? <laughs> okay, I'll give it a five. Yay! It's, it's average, no. isn't it? The, the only thing I would take issue with, maybe this isn't science, maybe this is more of set dressing. Is it normal to have lamps on your dining table? No. Because that's what they had, didn't they? It was 2013. Lamps on your dining Where would you yeah. plug them in? You'd have to have a dining table with electricity sockets in it, or it'd be very awkward, wouldn't it? You make a very good point. I guess it's a filming requirement that they had to have... Presumably, they just use the lights in the in home. The, in the home, they rent it for two weeks. Yeah. Alistair, what's your score for science? I no, I'm, I'm going to give this film in terms of science. I'm going to give it a five as well. Wow. So let's talk about the acting. Okay, can I jump in here? Okay. Yeah, well, I was going to give it six, but now I've found out that it's all improvised, I'm going to give it seven. I'll say no more. Back to you, Richard. Oh, very quick. Uh, I, I thought it was very convincing, actually. Although, again, maybe maybe they, did, they didn't react in quite the way you would in that circumstance. But there's a contrivance there for the purpose yeah. of the whole plot, isn't there? And there were a couple of moments that were a bit hammy. I think Beth was a bit funny about that door, the side door, which didn't totally persuade. The door that goes... The door to the way. void, I think they called it at one point. <laughs> I wasn't totally sure about Mike's conversion from you know actor to a murderous uh, alcoholic. But, uh, yeah, I think an eight Whoa. is fair. High praise indeed. Okay. Um, the, the bit that I wasn't convinced with, with the acting, was the animosity between Beth and Laurie. I think they were obviously set up, it's probably in the, in mm. the rubric for the characters, that they were supposed to dislike each other. Because they just, yes. they, they don't seem to know each yeah. other overly well, but there just seems to be open hostility from the get-go. Between I thought that was really good. Did you? Maybe perhaps that reflects, that yeah, perhaps that reflects really... relationships I've had, but it seemed very, very true to me. But Richard, it doesn't really go <laughs> no, anywhere. No, no, that's it? right. That's, that's what really happens. It's anywhere, just pointless it? animosity. <laughs> so Richard, is the animosity surrounding you to do with having shared female females who have shared you meeting yes, each other? Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's no more. That sounds that sounds terrible. I'm, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> share so many females. You can just sit back and think. Oh, I'm not sure how, and I don't know how to stop it. <laughs> right on to I, SFX. Alistair didn't give his score. Oh, oh, wait. Well, he gave his high praise. So I think it's an eight. Because I think be. I think they were yes. brilliant. I think the acting was absolutely top notch. Sorry for jumping the gun. Okay, jump in the gun. Uh, SFX and action. There's no SFX. Yes, there is but action. What do you think? There is. About there is, is F- SFX. They have to get two Where? copies of Mike to oh, fight why? one another, and two <laughs> copies of M to fight one another at one point. Uh, and you know, it, okay, it's convincing. Well, it's persuasive. You didn't even know it was a special effect, Paul. So it, it clearly persuaded know, you. Yeah. You thought there were two versions of those people, didn't you? I did. I thought they were twins. Yeah. Well, they were. But that's that's a special they effect, were. man. That is. Yeah. Look, yeah, I guess it is. It's a, it's a choreographed special effect, yeah. Look, I mean, I, the action here was tension and, and paranoia. I thought I thought it worked really well, so I'm going to give it a, a lovely little seven. Yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it a seven for being persuasive when it had to be. Obviously, they made a bit of a mistake with the depiction of the comet, and they had a horrible time making complete darkness. But that, that would always be true in any film, anyway. Yeah, I think um, one of the key ways in which they do the tension in terms of the effects, is the use of noise. And that bit where there's that first banging on the door, 
Mm. And they really, do, you know, that is a real jump scare moment because it's, it's totally out of the blue. And they yeah. all the actors obviously had no idea that was going to happen. And they all crap themselves and jump out of their skins as well. I'm going to go six. Finally, screenplay, Richard. What do you think about screenplay? There's a lot to love about this piece. It, it's a nice puzzle oh. box. It's intricate. It's it's cleverly mm. done. My, my misgiving, as I mentioned, is I, I think... I remember the first time I watched this film. Th- the second time... I got a lot more out of it in a way. The first time I was really disappointed that there ended up being more than just two and it it got a lot more complicated. And I I understand the reasons for that and I know that the story in the end is something slightly different. But there was a moment in the middle of the film the first time through where I thought these two houses Mm. were like mirrors or something were going to perfectly kind of match up and sync up with one another. I thought that was brilliant. And it... Thwarted. Like French mime pup, like French mime artists. Yeah. They go to the glass <laughs> and sort of do that with their hands. So it's it's thwarted that desire that, that I had that idea of it in my mind building. They pulled the rug out and that's the only way in which I think this has failed itself. And there are probably other plot holes, there's probably other fridge logic that will come up if we think about it. But yeah, so I'll give it a 7.5. Oh. I think I'm yeah. going to go 7.5 as well. Paul, how about you? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go 10 here. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is the perfect story for you. This is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Okay. I, and, yeah. and that's your script score, not your overall score, which would... Not my overall score, no, no, my script. My script score, I, I thought it was absolutely amazing it was it was great well, even given it. the fact that every, every, in, in a sense it wasn't scripted <laughs> i think even more yeah. so yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah i see the sense of that totally so your overall score then paul is uh 8.5 okay okay I'm, it's definitely a recommend oh for me definitely i'm gonna yeah. absolutely echo that in 8.5 i think this is a super film I re- this is way better than i thought it was going to be i really thoroughly oh, enjoyed it yeah. it's really yeah. clever and has a lot of I'm free. <laughs> there's a lot of warmth in it. There's a lot. There's a lot. You know, the people are all enjoyable to watch. Um, uh, yeah, it's all. It's all great. Mm, Richard, how about you? Uh, I'm going to go eight eight point five. No actually. way. Hey, we're all in agreement. Oh, lovely. Wow. Yeah. That's lovely. I, I, like I say, I think it's such a nice puzzle box of a piece. It's, it's, I think that's what Nolan talks about his films being, isn't it? As well, but entertaining and unusual, and it's not hard sci-fi. It's told in a very straightforward way in a lot of senses. It's creepy without being Halloween-y, jump-scary. Yeah. It's, it's got a lot going for it. Yeah. Who is going to suggest a film for next week? Oh, I can. I've got three. Uh, Midsommar, or Midsommar, or I don't know how you say it. Midsommar. Uh, Beyond, but not the Beyond we watched previously. Uh, It's coming close to Christmas. I thought we'd take a tack away from sci-fi. The Beyond is pure schlock spaghetti horror. Uh, And also heredity. Hereditary. Let me get my chops around that. Hereditary is how you say that. Uh, A third movie I know very little about. Well, all of them are horrors, Paul. Midsummer and Heredity are Ari Aster, I think, is the name of the director of those. And they're kind of new horror, as opposed to the old-fashioned spaghetti Western Italian slasher horror type. Certainly Midsummer is very Scandinavian. Is it techno-goth? 
Is it the is it is it the techno goth equivalent in film? Well, it's the modern day equivalent of uh, the Wicker Man. Oh, I see. The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. Yeah. Uh, all right. Midsummer then. Yeah, we, we'll love this. So in the middle of winter, it, we'll watch Midsummer. It, I think it's probably just what we need in lockdown in in winter. Midsummer. Yeah. Here's the music. In three, two, two and one. one. Thank you.